Well, we're going to turn to our time in the Word now, so take your Bible with me, please. If you didn't bring one, grab one out of the hymn book holders. Uh, outlines, if you use those, study notes or whatever materials you use as we dive into our consideration of God's precious and priceless Word. <clears throat> one of the most exciting facets of life, for me at least, is seeing how God uses people to accomplish His work. And the encouraging thing about that subject is the fact that the, the Lord uses all kinds of people to accomplish His work. The Lord can take any kind of person who is submitted to Him and use that person for His glory. There is no such thing as not being qualified unless you disqualify yourself by refusing to deal with sin in your life. 2 Timothy 2 talks about being a vessel unto honor, sanctified and useful for the Master. So if you are willing to allow the Lord to sanctify you, and if you are willing to do what you need to do about sin in your life, then you can be useful for the Master. You can't be underqualified. Because 1 Corinthians 1 teaches... That God delights in using the non-intellectual, the weak, the base, the lowly, the insignificant, the unknowns, the nobodies for His glory. As I heard someone say years ago, God is looking for fat people. Faithful, available, teachable. A publication called Light put it this way. Longfellow could take a worthless piece of paper, write a poem on it, and make it worth $6,000. That is a genius. Rockefeller can sign his name to a piece of paper and make it worth a million. That is capital. Uncle Sam can take gold, stamp an eagle on it, and make it worth $20. That is money. A mechanic can take materials worth $5 and make an article worth $50. That is skill. An artist can take a 50-cent piece of canvas, paint a picture on it, and make it work worth $1,000. That is art. God can take a worthless, sinful life, wash it in the blood of Christ, put his spirit in it and make it a blessing to humanity, that is salvation. That's the kind of business our Lord is in still today. The Lord Jesus Christ makes sure, once we are in him, that our past is a past that is past. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If any, anyone is in Christ, that person is a new creation. That's what salvation is all about. But it doesn't stop there. Once the Lord has saved us, then His plan is to continue changing us to be useful to the Master. Here's another illustration of that truth. There once was a great concert violinist who wanted to demonstrate a very important point, so he rented a music hall and announced that he would play a concert on a $20,000 violin. On the night of the concert, the place was packed with violin lovers, curious to hear such an expensive instrument played. The violinist came out on stage and gave an exquisite performance. When he was done, he bowed and took their applause, but suddenly he threw the violin to the ground, stomped it to pieces, and walked off the stage. The people were horrified. The stage manager then came out and said, Ladies and gentlemen, to put you at ease, the violin that was just destroyed was only a $20 violin. He will now return to play on the $20,000 instrument. He did so, and few people could tell the difference. 
The point that he wanted to make was well illustrated, and the point was this. It isn't the violin that makes the music, it's the violinist. That's encouraging when you take the spiritual parallel, because most of us are $20 violins at best. But in the Master's hands, we can make beautiful music. The Lord uses all kinds of unqualified people, and He can use you, and He can use me. One of the greatest illustrations of this fact is a man who was given a privilege that only three other men in the universe have ever had. Only four, he was one of four, three other men, only four men in the history of mankind have had this privilege. This man was a failure in ministry at one point in his life. But once the Lord turned him around, the Lord gave him the privilege of writing one of the four Gospels. The man's name was John Mark, and we know his book of the Bible as the Gospel According to Mark. That's the book we want to consider in this message. But before we turn to the Gospel of Mark, I want us to get a little background on the human author. As I mentioned just a moment ago, there was a time in his life when Mark was a failure in ministry. I want us to look at that before we actually begin surveying his book. So turn with me to the book of Acts, first of all, chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. This chapter records the beginning of Paul's first missionary journey. And as you probably know, Paul's partner on his first journey was Barnabas, so designated by the Holy Spirit himself in Acts 13, 1 and 2. But in verse 5, we read this. And when they arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. They also had John as their assistant. Now the John mentioned here in verse 5 of Acts 13 is John Mark. We know him usually as Mark. He was an assistant to Paul and Barnabas, this verse says. He was an assistant at the beginning of this journey, but something happened as things unfolded. Skip down to verse 13. Now when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. Why did John Mark leave? Through the years, several suggestions have been made. Some have said that he got upset with Paul because Paul took over the leadership of the team. Early on, it was Barnabas and Paul, Barnabas and Paul in that order. But here in verse 13, it was Paul and his party. Did you notice that? Paul was a natural leader, and in time, he was the dominant figure of the team. Of course, this was by the design of the Holy Spirit. But maybe John Mark didn't like it because he was the cousin of Barnabas. It's possible he was jealous for Barnabas' sake. So maybe he left because he got upset with Paul's leadership. We don't know. It's conjecture, possibility. That kind of thing does happen on the mission field, sadly. Others have suggested that John Mark left because of fear. At this point in the journey, the team was headed into the most difficult and dangerous stretch of all. They had to cross the Taurus Mountains where there were thieves and robbers hiding out to jump on travelers. In addition to that threat, there were dangerous rivers to cross, dangerous terrain to cross, so maybe John Mark went back out of fear. Another possibility is that he left because he disagreed with the emphasis on ministry to Gentiles. John Mark was a strict Jew who may have had a hard time with the focus of the ministry as it began to unfold. You will remember that Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. 
And maybe John Mark could see things heading that direction. It's, it's possible that he assumed, or he had assumed, that the ministry would focus exclusively on Jews, and he didn't like what he perceived to be a change in direction. That's a possibility. Or maybe he just left because the romance of ministry had worn off. Maybe the newness was gone and he found out how difficult and discouraging ministry to people really is, so he left. We don't know for sure what the reason was, but we know that Paul didn't think it was a valid reason. We know that because of what happens near the end of chapter 15 of Acts. So turn over a couple of chapters to the end of chapter 15. Verse 36, then after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, remember this, this was the original team, Paul and Barnabas, let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Now Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Mark. The tense of this verb indicates that Barnabas kept insisting It's an imperfect tense which describes continuous action in the past. So Barnabas kept insisting that they take John Mark. Verse 38, but Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. So Paul was just as strong on his position as Barnabas was on his position. Whatever the reason for Mark's previous departure, Paul didn't think it was a valid reason. Now, it is likely that Barnabas didn't think it was a valid reason either, but Barnabas was willing to give John Mark another chance. Paul didn't think that was wise. Dr. Warren Wearsby put it this way, quote, Paul looked at people and asked, what can they do for God's work? While Barnabas looked at people and asked, what can God's work do for them? Both questions are important to the Lord's work, and sometimes it is difficult to keep things balanced, end quote. Barnabas thought it was worth the chance to give John Mark another opportunity. Paul didn't, so they're at an impasse. I'm sure that Paul didn't think John Mark was useless to the cause of Christ, but Paul was probably thinking that missionary and pastoral work is too important to experiment with or take chances with, so no go. John Mark's not going with us. So Paul and Barnabas could not see eye to eye on this issue. Verse 39 tells us, Then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. You know something? God even brought good out of this. Instead of one missionary team, the result was two missionary teams. But the question for us in this message is not what I know a lot of you are thinking. Well, who was right? That's not the question we're going to answer. Sorry. The question for this message is how did Mark get back on track? As you piece the evidence together, it seems that somehow John Mark got linked up with the Apostle Peter, who had a significant ministry in his life. After all, Peter knew how to minister to those who had failed because Peter had been there himself. God used Peter to have a significant ministry in the life of John Mark, and the result was that John Mark was moved, directed by the Spirit of God, to use Peter to write one of the Gospels, the Gospel of Mark. 
John Mark was the human author of the book we know as the Gospel of Mark, and the evidence is overwhelming that Mark used Peter as his primary source of information in writing the book. After all, Peter was an eyewitness. John Mark was not. So there's a great ending to the story. God is so good in his sovereign control of things. The rupture in Acts 15 looked like a fiasco, but God brought good out of it in a number of ways. What a beautiful illustration of Romans 8, 28. God works all things together for good, even our stupid mistakes, human errors, faults, failures, and frailties. God can and does use people like Mark who have failed in the past, but who have turned back to the Lord wholeheartedly. And when they do turn to the Lord wholeheartedly, they want to point people to their Lord. That's exactly what Mark does in his gospel. So let's back up there to consider the message of that book that bears his name. The key verse in Mark's gospel is found in chapter 10. So let's begin there. Mark chapter 10, verse 45. Many commentators suggest, and I would agree that this is sort of the central or key verse in Mark's gospel. Mark 10, verse 45, spoken by Jesus himself, where he said... For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The reason why that is the key verse of this gospel is because Mark's portrait of our Lord is as the tireless servant. It seems that Mark's primary audience was the Roman population. You may remember Matthew's focus group was the Jewish people, Luke's was the Greeks, John universal, Mark focused his writing on a Roman audience. The Romans knew all about servants because a huge portion of their population was servants or slaves. In fact, some historians suggest that approximately one-third of the entire Roman Empire was composed of slaves. So Mark presents Jesus as the obedient servant or... You could use the term properly, the obedient slave, always quick to do the will of the Father. In fact, the word immediately occurs 42 times in this brief gospel. That is more than the rest of the New Testament combined. That's how often Mark uses this word. Jesus was always quick to do the will of his Father. That's how Mark presents our Lord. His emphasis is on what Jesus did more than what Jesus said. Mark only records two extended discourses of Jesus, but he records 18 of our Lord's miracles to demonstrate his power and his compassion. So with that as background, let's go back to chapter 1 to do our overview or survey of Mark's portrait of our Lord Jesus Christ. Back to chapter 1. And notice how Mark opens his gospel record, beginning in chapter 1, verse 1. We read Mark 1, 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make, make his path straight. 
John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, There comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. I indeed baptize with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. What I want you to notice about this introduction is that Mark skips right over two of the most important aspects of Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel. He skips right over the genealogy of Jesus, and he skips over his birth. He begins his gospel record with Jesus as a man. You see, a genealogy would not have been important to Mark's Roman readers. You don't really care about the genealogy of a slave. What's so important about a slave's genealogy? You don't really care about the birth. If the slave somehow distinguishes himself, it's by what he does, his life. And that's what Mark's concern is. So he skips right over the genealogy of Jesus, skips right over his birth. Those kinds of things would have been unimportant to Mark's Roman, Roman readers. They wanted to know what Jesus did. So Mark jumped right into the events that preceded Christ's public ministry. And then in verse 9 we read, It came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. Then a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. By the way, this is a sub, a key sub-theme of Mark's gospel. He wants his readers to know that this humble, obedient servant, and that's the primary way he presents Jesus, but he wants his readers to know that this humble, obedient servant is no less than the Son of God. He said that back in verse 1. Do you remember? We may have read it so quickly you didn't notice. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And Mark is going to reveal this fact in a number of ways throughout his gospel. It's not his primary theme like it is in John's gospel. John especially exalts the deity of Christ, but Mark has it as a key sub-theme. Look at chapter 3 as an example. Chapter 3, verse 11. And the unclean spirits, whenever they saw him, fell down before him and cried out, saying, You are the Son of God. Mark made sure to record that, made sure that got in his gospel. Look at chapter 5, another example. Chapter 5, verse 2. And when Jesus had come out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit who had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one could bind him, not even with chains, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been pulled apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces. Neither could anyone tame him, and always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshipped him, and he cried out with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God that you do not torment me. Again, Mark records the fact that the humble and obedient servant is no less than the Son of God. Even the demons recognized him as such. Look at chapter 9 few chapters over to the right. This is when Jesus took Peter, James, and John up to the Mount of Transfiguration. 
And in verse 7, we are told, A cloud came and overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son. Hear Him. Look at chapter 14 for another example. This is Jesus on trial before Caiaphas. And right near the end of chapter 14 in verse 61, in verse 61, he kept silent and answered nothing, Jesus that is. Again the high priest asked him, saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. One other example, chapter 15. This is, this is at the scene of the cross when Jesus was crucified. Chapter 15, verse 39. So when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that, he cried out, saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. These are important segments in the Gospel of Mark. Again, I say, he wants us to see that Jesus was the humble, obedient servant. But he also wants us to see that this humble and obedient servant is no less than the Son of God. Now back to chapter 1. So that is a major sub-theme in Mark's gospel, just under the primary emphasis of Jesus as the humble, obedient servant. Notice chapter 1, verse 12. We read, Immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness, and he was there in the wilderness forty days, tempted by Satan, and was with the wild beasts, and the angels ministered to him. Now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Did you notice the word immediately at the beginning of verse 12? That's the way Mark's gospel unfolds. It may be translated differently in your version, uh, but straightway, immediately, a, a term that indicates some t- sort of movement. The, that's, that's the way Mark's gospel unfolds all the way through. It's a crisp and fast-moving look at the life of Christ. In verses 16 through 19, Jesus saw Peter, Andrew, James, and John. And we read in verse 20, And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went after him. Then they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and he taught. You see, we're beginning to see Jesus on the move. This is what Mark wants us to understand. Continual activity, service, serving the Father, doing the will of the Father. Verse 23, now there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the unclean spirit had convulsed him and cried out with a loud voice, he came out of him. Then they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And immediately his fame spread throughout all the region around Galilee. But Jesus didn't wait around to hear about his popularity. He had work to do. Remember, he's a servant, a tireless servant. Verse 29 
Now as soon as they had come out of the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. But Simon's wife's mother lay sick with a fever, and they told him about her at once. So he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and immediately the fever left her, and she served them. At evening, when the sun had set, they brought him all who were sick and those who were demon-possessed. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. Then he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he did not allow the demons to speak because they knew him. This gives you a good feel for Mark's gospel. Jesus is seen as always serving, always ministering, always on the move, always doing the will of the Father. But, but, he never let himself get too busy for the essential things in life because we read here in verse 35, now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place and there he prayed. This faithful tireless servant continually drew his strength from his father to be able to give the way he gave and serve the way he served. Chapter 2 continues to describe the many things Jesus did in his ministry. He granted forgiveness to a paralytic and then he healed him physically. He called others to follow him. He taught and even contended with the religious leaders of his day. In chapter 3, he healed a man who had a deformed hand. He cast out demons. He appointed the 12 disciples. He contended with the scribes, and he called others to obey the will of God. In chapter 4, he taught the multitudes with parables, and afterwards he demonstrated his authority over nature by calming the storm and the sea. In chapter 5, he again cast out demons, healed the sick, and even raised the dead. In chapter 6, he sent out the twelve to minister. He fed 5,000. He walked on the water, and he healed many more people. Look at verse 54 of chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 54. I'm sorry, chapter 6, verse 54. Look at what Mark tells us here. And when they came out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him, ran through that whole surrounding region, and began to carry about on beds those who were sick to wherever they heard he was. Wherever he entered into villages, cities, or the country, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and begged him that they might just touch the hem of his garment. And as many as touched him were made well. Jesus was the compassionate servant. In chapter 7, he rebuked the Pharisees. He cast a demon out of a young girl and he healed the deaf mute. In chapter 8, he fed 4,000, again rebuked the Pharisees, taught his disciples, healed the blind man, and began preparing his disciples for death. Let me pause for just a moment. Many, many commentators and Bible scholars see chapter 8 as a pivotal chapter because from this point on, even though Jesus continues ministering to the multitudes, he begins to focus more on his disciples. His death is only about six months away at this point, And he knows he has to prepare his disciples for what's coming. So in the early verses of chapter 9, Jesus strategically reassured Peter, James, and John that even though he was going to die, he is the Son of God and he will be the victor. Look at chapter 9, verse 2. Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves. 
and he was transfigured before them. His clothes became shining, exceedingly white like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. And Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, because he did not know what to say, for they were greatly afraid. And the cloud came and overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, hear him. Suddenly, when they had looked around, they saw no one anymore, but only Jesus with themselves. Now as they came down from the mountain, he commanded them that they should tell no one the things they had seen, till the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept this word to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead meant. You see, even though Jesus had told them he was going to die, it didn't get through to them. So Jesus gave them this experience to help anchor them through the turbulent times that were coming. And he continued to remind them that he must die. Down in verse 30, we are told, Then they departed from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know it. For he taught his disciples and said to them, The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise the third day. But they did not understand this saying, and they were afraid to ask him. They just couldn't accept the fact that Jesus was going to die. That's one of the reasons why it was so devastating to them when he did die until he rose again. So Jesus continued to prepare them, and he also continued to minister to the multitudes. In chapter 10, he taught the multitudes, and at the end of the chapter, he healed blind Bartimaeus. Now, hear this. We just covered about three and a half years in ten chapters. Three and a half years in ten chapters. The last six chapters cover eight days. So what that tells you is that this story slows way, way down for the rest of Mark's gospel. Fast-paced, fast-moving, three and a half years over ten chapters, and then for six chapters he details eight days. Almost 40% of this gospel is devoted to a detailed account of the last eight days of Jesus' life, climaxing in his resurrection. Chapter 11, for example, tells about his triumphal entry, the cleansing of the temple, Jesus' teaching in the temple. The section on his teaching runs all the way through chapter 13, and in chapter 13, Mark records the second of the only two extended discourses by Jesus in this gospel. It's interesting to note that in chapter 13, Jesus predicted the coming destruction of the temple by the Romans in A.D. 70. Look at what he said in chapter 13, verse 1. It says, Then as he went out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. This was a monumental building uh, complex that Herod had built around the temple as he beautified the temple, built the temple mound and all of that. They said, yeah, look at this. What do you think about this, Jesus? And Jesus answered and said to him, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. And that is exactly what the Romans did in A.D. 70. Some of those massive stones are still right beside the southwest corner of the Temple Mount today. You can see them if you go to Jerusalem because they're right where they landed. 
The Romans threw all the stones down, just as Jesus said. God was going to allow that to happen because the Jewish people and their leaders rejected God's servant. In spite of all the good he had done, in spite of all the proof he gave to back up his claims, the Jewish people rejected their Messiah and saw to it that he was killed. That leads us to chapter 14. In the early verses of this chapter, a woman anointed Jesus' head with a very costly perfume. Jesus said she did that to anoint him for his burial. Look at chapter 14, verse 8. She has done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. On the next Thursday after this, Jesus ate the Passover with his disciples. Skip down to verse 22. Mark tells us, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Events are rapid, rapidly moving toward his ultimate act of service, his death. For the sin of the world. He went to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray, and while he was there, he was arrested. Verse 43 of this chapter tells us, And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now his betrayer had given them a signal, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away safely. And as as soon as he had come, immediately he went up to him, that is to Jesus, and said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, and kissed him. Then they laid their hands on him and took him. Mark records two, only two of the six trials that Jesus had. You'll remember that Jesus had three religious trials, three judicial trials. Mark only records two. He tells about Jesus before Caiaphas, here in chapter 14, and then Jesus before Pilate in chapter 15. Look at chapter 15, verse 1. Immediately in the morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus, led him away, and delivered him to Pilate. Well, you know what happened from there. Pilate caved into the wishes of the crowd and turned Jesus over to be crucified. Down in verse 15, we are told, so Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them, and he delivered Jesus, after he had scourged him, to be crucified. After abusing Jesus further, the soldiers carried out the crucifixion. Down in verse 25, we read, now it was the third hour, and they crucified him. Mark is using Roman time which began at 6 o'clock in the morning, so the third hour would be 9 a.m. That's when the humble servant was nailed to the cross. 9 a.m. Verse 33 says, Now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. That's from noon until 3 p.m. There was darkness because the servant was bearing your sin and my sin. This is what he had come to do. 
This was his purpose. We read his words earlier in chapter 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That's exactly what he did when he died. He gave his life. He was a humble servant, but mark it well, he wasn't a victim of this situation. He gave his life. It wasn't taken. He gave it. And then he was buried by a man named Joseph of Arimathea. Verse 46. Then he bought fine linen, took him, took him down, that is, took the body of Jesus down, and wrapped him in the linen, and he laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out of the rock and rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. But the obedient servant, as you know, didn't stay in the tomb. So Mark adds chapter 16, verse 1. Now when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices that they might come and anoint him. Very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. And they said among themselves, Who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? But, but they look, when they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, for it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. God honored his servant by raising him from the dead. He was a humble and obedient servant. And he was raised a victorious conqueror over sin and death. Beloved, this is the way God works. Scripture tells us this over and over again. He exalts those who are willing to be humble. 1 Peter 5, 6 says, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. That's one of the things that Mark clearly wants us to learn from his gospel. He wants us to realize that this humble an obedient servant is no less than the Son of God who died to take away our sin. Mark also wants us, once we have yielded our lives to the Lord Jesus, to follow his example of servanthood and his example of obedience to the Father. Turn back to chapter 10 as we close. We begin our survey of Mark's gospel in chapter 10, and I want us to close in chapter 10. Because I think it's highly significant that Mark chose to record this particular event that we'll look at in closing. Beginning in verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Grant us that we may sit one on your right hand and the other on your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, you, you don't know what you ask. You have no idea what you're talking about. You have no idea what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They said to him, we are able. So Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink the cup that I drink. And with the baptism I am baptized with, you will be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is my, not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared and when the ten heard it, they, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. Now, don't you dare think that they were displeased because they thought, 
poor James and John, they just aren't being very spiritual here. That's not the issue at all. They're displeased because they got the inside track. And they, they understood what was going on here. And Jesus knew what was going on here. So in verse 42, Jesus called them to himself. Team meeting. Here we go, guys. We have some stuff to cover. He called them to himself and said, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them. This is the pattern of leadership you've seen in the Roman world, he is saying. Those who are leaders lord it over. They dominate. They exercise their authority with, with a firm hand. They, they put themselves forward. That's, the, that's what you've seen. And their great ones exercise authority over them. Verse 43, yet it shall not be so among you. That's not the way you're going to lead. That's not going to be your style. It's not going to be the way you handle your positions. It's not going to be that way among you. But whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. That's not an easy pill for us to swallow. But it follows the pattern of the greatest servant who has ever lived. And he says, for, the verse we started with, for, let me explain this to you further, men. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. I hope you know this servant personally as your Lord and Savior, and I hope you desire to follow his example of humble servanthood. Let's bow together as we close. Father, what a mar marvelous portrait of our blessed Savior and your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for, in your purposes, by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, guiding Mark to pen this gospel account, one of the four that you chose to give us. It certainly is a powerful record. Thank you for granting Mark that privilege, one who had bailed out early in ministry, one who had defected, who turned back for whatever reason. And yet, he had another opportunity. He had another chance. And by your grace, he moved forward with that opportunity. He moved forward with that privilege, that, that rare, rare opportunity to be one of the gospel writers. Thank you for your work of grace in his life. Thank you for your work of grace in our lives. Because all of us in this room have, at one time or another, also been failures, even as believers. So thank you for grace. Thank you for second chances. Thank you for that redeeming love that not only redeems us from our sin, but gives us a redemptive chance to turn the corner when we failed. Peter certainly knew that. Mark knew that. Many of us here know that. We thank you for your grace in that way. Thank you for the, 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 the marvelous example of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who came to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Father, I pray if there's anyone with us who doesn't know this servant personally, that your spirit would, through this, this look at Jesus and Mark's gospel, would, would draw that person to the Lord Jesus. And for the majority of us who do know him, may we be challenged again by his life as we've seen it in this sweeping overview. May we be challenged by his life and by his example to be like him. For we pray these things in his precious and holy name. Amen.